This is the Ed Milet Show. All right, welcome back to the show, everybody. So, fired up about today. Producer calls me about six months ago and goes, hey, Jewel wants to come on your show. And I'm like, yes, immediately, yes. But I had no idea what we were going to talk about. It was just, it was Jewel. We got a legend to come on my show. I'm like, absolutely, yes. And then I started to prepare for the podcast. And they're like, oh, she's a mental health advocate. I'm like, oh, that's nice. A celebrity who's a mental health advocate. There's a few of those. And then I started (laughs) to dig into her work. And then I went, whoa. And then I fell in love with her work. And I've been in this loop for off and on for about six months learning from her because she's not just a mental health advocate. She's a strategist. And she's somebody who has lived through this in a way that makes her authentic in the tools that she teaches and her experience in her life. Obviously, you all know her, multi-Grammy-nominated artist, my favorite voice of all time, and somebody whose music I've listened to for about 20 years. But we're not going to talk that much about music today. We're going to talk about making your life better. So, Jewel, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thanks. I really appreciate it. So good to have you. So I I, I read about your upbringing. It reminds me a little bit of mine, but yours was more traumatic. So I had an alcoholic dad. You had two very interesting parents not really raise you, is the way that I kind of read about it, right? So you have your mom kind of, you thought left because of a divorce, but it turns out your mom just really didn't want to be around and really raise you. That had to be traumatic to figure out. And as I take it, your dad was a pretty, pretty rough dude, pretty abrasive, maybe even abusive dude who loved alcohol like my dad did. So just set the stage for us about why you needed help you know, with all of the issues that you ended up developing and what your upbringing was like, because I don't think everybody knows that story in my audience. That was a funny way of saying that. Yeah. Raised by two uh, interesting people that didn't really raise me. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm 49 now, so I'm probably going to talk from my perspective looking back um, versus what I thought my life was as it was happening. I don't know if one is more useful than the other, but basically my mom left when I was eight. Uh, My dad took over raising us. My dad started drinking, uh, became physically abusive. I ended up moving out at 15 because I thought I could live in a cabin by myself or I could live in a cabin with a guy that isn't nice to me. So why not just go live in a cabin by myself? I knew that statistically kids like me end up repeating the cycle. So I knew it was dangerous. I knew moving out wouldn't um, necessarily meant my movie would end well. (laughs) Um, and so I had to have a plan, a strategy of why I felt like moving out would lead to a better outcome than me staying with an abusive single parent. So I had been learning in school about genetic, you know, predispositions that I could have a predisposition to diabetes or heart disease genetically. And I realized that there was an emotional inheritance and that fascinated me. Nobody had talked to me about it. It was just, I'm dyslexic and I see pictures in my brain and I see patterns in a weird way. And so I just remember thinking about this emotional inheritance. And as I looked at it, I was like, wait, this is a language. I was taught a language. I was taught an emotional language. And this language doesn't work for me. I don't like this language, but there's no school to go to to learn another language. So my job, my proposition I made myself was I'll move out if I can teach myself a new emotional language, a new emotional way of relating to the world. And I didn't know how to do it, but at least I knew what my job was. And that felt like it was worthwhile to move out and kind of embark on that journey. So just a few weeks ago, it's interesting. I told you before we came on, like how our work intersects. So I just did a podcast, a solo episode a few weeks ago on nature versus nurture. And I said, I think one of the things you should do if you're a good parent is actually nurture the child's nature. In other words, find out what their gift is, their proclivities are, and nurture those strengths that they have. But you and I were raised in ways that I don't know that we knew our nature. And I've heard you talk about this, that at some point you wanted to learn to nurture whatever you thought your nature was. And that at the same time, you said this thing about You really can't be in two states at once. I've never even heard this before. So I want to combine two things. This work you talk about where you're like dilated or contracted. I've never even heard that before. So explain that. And then like this idea of discovering your nature. Yeah. um, I'll probably start with nature versus nurture. I um, 
I was an avid reader when I was young and had kind of come across the concept nature versus nurture. And when I moved out, it suddenly made me really quite frightened because of a bunny. I had a bunny named Caramel on the ranch I was raised on. And this rabbit was raised with chickens. It was the safest place for it. Um, it was in the hen house, very protected from predators in Alaska. And so since a tiny, tiny little baby bunny, it was raised with chickens and it pecked at its food and it waddled. It didn't really hop like a bunny and it would actually lay on the nests for the hens and it would hatch eggs, which is adorable until you move out at 15 and you go, what if I'm a bunny that thinks it's a chicken? Will I ever know my nature if my nurture was so f***ed up? Wow. I shouldn't cuss. I it's will okay. take out the F words. Okay. I'll be better. It's okay. But it really scared me. I didn't know the word trauma, but what I was basically wondering was, did my trauma deter or inhibit my ability to know my nature? And so what I knew were just the words nature, nurture. And so the next thing that really got me down the road on the concept was I was peeling an orange one day and I was absentmindedly peeling the orange and it suddenly just hit me in a flash of, wait a minute. An orange's peel is its uh, response to its environment to protect its fruit, right? The peel is the response to its environment that protects its fruit. Now, that seems really obvious. Yeah. But what if my psyche, what if my personality was a response to protect myself from my environment and it had nothing to do with what was the fruit? Who was I in here? I spent all of my time relating to my psyche, to my nurture. You know, yes. all of the assumptions I made about myself based on neglect, abuse, an unsafe environment, all the strategies and coping mechanisms I developed to keep myself as a boundary, as a barrier between me, what's in me and my environment. I spent all of my time on this outward exterior when what actually really mattered was what the heck was the orange? <laughs> what was I inside of here? And I was willing to suppose that my nature, and that's why I wrote the book, my book's called Never Broken. It's so good. You everybody. can't break this nature. Thank you. Yeah, you can't break what's in here. I just had to develop a relationship with it. I had to stop investing in my relationship with my suspicion, my paranoia, my insecurity, all of these things that just had to do with how I was protecting myself from my environment. And I had to develop strategies of getting to know my nature. And that was exciting. And then I could develop strategies of how to do that. Writing was one way, being quiet was another way, and then ultimately other strategies. We're going to talk about this dilated, contracted thing here in a second, but I have to say something. When I was reading that work, it's like something I probably never said out loud. I have this show where I'm supposed to help people change their lives and it's become this big thing. But I think I still avoid that. Like I'm 52. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm glad that you said it was exciting to get to know yourself because I almost feel like I think I've still spent like a majority of my life. Makes me emotional to say, but like avoiding me. Like I, I still lots of coping mechanisms whether they're work success i don't know whatever it might be like spending time alone with myself and really getting to know me is something i think many people listening to this may relate to my side of it but i think i probably still avoid it to some extent i'm really good at pretending i know me very well i'm really good at relating with other people i'm really good at helping other people heal but when I was preparing for this interview, it really made me look at myself. I, I, I'm being very sincere when I tell you that your work has profoundly impacted me. And do you relate to that a little bit? Like, I know you said it was exciting to do, but I still avoid, I think I still avoid that to some extent. Do you, do you find yourself slipping back into that pattern? Or are you so far down the road that that never happens to you anymore? First of all, I'm just beaming with pride for you. My heart is bursting with pride for what you're saying. Um, it's so easy to be an expert. Yeah. Uh, and it starts, to, or it can be the same way fame can be, a prism that isn't authentic. Um, because if we're doing our job, we're always on the edge of not knowing. We're always on the edge of of knowing better. Um. I can definitely relate. You know, I think 
for me at the time I'm talking about when I was 15, it was exciting because it was a job. You know, I had something to do. <clears throat> and when you move out at that young of an age and you have no strategy and you're up against paying rent and really scary, dangerous things, knowing at least your goal is it, it's like, whew, you now you're a soldier with a war to fight, you know? So it was exciting because of that. Um, it was a job to do. I relate to what you're saying later in my life, because when I started to realize I was learning spiritual practices and self-help practices as an elegant form of control to help me avoid healing and to control life from making anything bad ever happen again, I had to realize a whole new level of theory that I was up to. Okay. I can't stop cussing. It was a whole new level of manipulation that I was trying to manipulate my environment, that my self-growth practices were a, me just trying to control life and say, if I practice perfectly, if I'm perfectly spiritual, if I'm perfectly healed, no more bad things will happen to me. Well, that's just silly. Bad things happen. We don't get to choose how life changes. We just get to choose how it changes us. What am oh, I going to well, do about it? You know, I have to tell you, I think we have the same sort of pattern when I was young. Cause when you come out of um, your situation was, I think significantly more traumatic than mine. I said that earlier, but I had to do a lot of work to become like a baseline functioning person. So I didn't do a lot of work initially. And then I built all these skills that could produce external results, just like you did. Like you became this prolific artist and so you get into that stage of your life where, okay, I've healed myself to some extent where now I've, I'm functional. And in my case, I produced companies and wealth and blah, 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 right? Whatever that stuff is, external. And you did as well. You produced this great art, this amazing music. You built this notoriety. And somehow that insulated me from ever spending a lot of time, at least in my case, with myself again. In other words, I, I built an environment around me, circumstances around me that allowed distraction almost of success or other people or events and things I had to go do. And I never really got around to spending any time with myself again. And I wondered why am I not enjoying this more? In other words, I'm very functional. I know how to succeed, but I don't really know how to be happy. I don't spend lots of times in the emotion of bliss. I don't spend lots of time. So I'm making other people happy. I'm having success, but I'm not fulfilled. I don't have that mechanism. And I think even now, and this is why I'm kind of going there with you on it. I still don't think I've produced the amount of bliss and happiness in my life that I'm worthy of, that I should have more. Do you relate to that at all? I mean, even like right now, the 49-year-old you who's become this expert, and we're going to talk about a lot of the tools and your site and these other things in a minute. But do you relate to that at all? Um, I do relate. I feel, you know, I, I relate to what you're saying of, you know, God forbid we're capable people, you know, <laughs> you can build a world around you that, that um, helps give you an even greater illusion of control um, yeah. and not having to feel vulnerable. And so if I can extrapolate some of what you're saying, you created a world that helped you not have to feel vulnerable. hundred percent. That, that's really uncomfortable for you. Yeah. Where my life varies a little bit is I was a writer. And so my life kept taking me into my body. Mm -hmm. um, my number one goal when I was 18 was to be a happy whole human, not a human full of holes. That was literally my life plan. <laughs> oh. I'm sure your business plan looked a lot better. <laughs> Mine <laughs> sounds silly. No, it doesn't. But that was my life plan. My number two job was to be a musician. And under that, I wanted to be an artist more than famous. And so I had, that was my hierarchical decision-making that I made my life decisions by. Did and you accomplish so that, Jewel? It was a, Did you do it? Yeah. Mm. I'm really happy. Mm. And that's different than being perfect. And that's different than not having heartache. Mm -hmm. And it's different than, uh, like, I'm working on things about myself every day. Mm you know, life has never ceased to be humbling in what I have to learn and how I have to grow and develop as a human. Mm -hmm. But I have very, very high satisfaction levels. And I've fought for those. 
I've fought for them with every ounce of my being. I made my happiness my number one mission in my life above money, above success, above career goals. When I quit making excuses for why I couldn't be happy, and when I started getting more curious about what does happiness even mean, because the, the tricky thing about happiness is it's a side effect. You can't get happy. You know, you just can't. You can't get happy. I mean, just tell someone who's sad. You can't just get happy when you're sad. It's a side effect. It's not like saying I discovered France and I'm never leaving the continent. Mm. Happiness is a side effect of choices. And often we don't know what's prompting our choices. We don't, we don't get to that level of understanding our subconscious motivations that are driving our choices. And why are we being driven to choices that lead to the side effect of dissatisfaction, you know, unfulfilling relationships, unfulfilling friendships, uh, things that don't nourish us, things that deplete us. I had to really come to terms with, it was me doing this to myself. I kept choosing abusive people. I kept choosing people that took from me. I kept choosing to give more than I should give. It was me behind the wheel of my body. What was I doing? What was driving me to these results that led to unhappiness? And could I choose differently? And that's really where the rubber meets the road. Mm. Um, and that's where I, you know, developing a lot of those tools and strategies for myself started helping me make better choices. Let's talk about one of those situations. I'm going to ask you a hard thing. So, you know, you talked about choosing people in your life that hurt you or did harm to you or took from you. But in your case, and in some people's cases, the people that took from them that harmed them, they didn't choose. They were their family, right? And so it's documented that in your case, you know, your mom, so over some time, like a lot of money. And there's someone listening to this or watching this right now that says, yes, but you know, my spouse did this to me, or my friend did this to me, or I was raised a particular way. And so it felt like it wasn't all just my choosing, but that some things happened to me. Are you saying you have to take responsibility for everything that happens in your life, including something like what happened to you, or what someone may be thinking was something that happened to them, they need to own that and take responsibility. That's number one. And then number two, what are some of those tools that you would suggest to somebody who's feeling those, those feelings? Yeah, you know, I, you don't get to choose your parents. Um, those are really tough positions to be in. You know, there's many women that are in a marriage they can't afford to leave or men. Uh, those are tough spots, you know, so I'm not saying those spots don't exist and it isn't, this has nothing to do with fault. It's just that in the, the game of healing and the, in the job of healing, nobody cares about fault. It doesn't, you know, it just doesn't count. It's either you learn to heal or you don't. You learn to make a healthier, more nourishing choice now that you know better. And you only know better when you know. Once you know, what are you going to do? Will you accept the responsibility of it? Um, the great thing about accepting responsibility, you know, I'm not responsible for everything, right? I'm not responsible for everything other people do to me. I don't have any control over that. I can only take responsibility for me. And so like healing from something like my mom, that was, you know, a tremendous thing to have to heal from. It was at the hands of a parent, you know, grooming from a really young age. It was a lot to unwind, a lot to heal from. But for me, learning for me to know the difference between a reason and an excuse. I had a lot of reasons why I couldn't be happy. But when I stopped accepting excuses for why I couldn't be now, my life changed. Mm -hmm. And so when that's I stop making excuses, my life gets healthier. And again, that's not because I don't have compassion for the reasons. But it doesn't matter. It starts to be binary. You're going to move forward and heal or Gosh. you're going to keep making bad choices and re-traumatize yourself. Mm. And it gets real simple. And so it does come down. I think healing is a gritty, gritty job. It's you looking in the mirror and going, what do I got? No one's coming for me. I'm coming for me. What do I got? What am I willing to do? What am I willing to do different today than I did yesterday? Will I take notes on it? Will I see if it worked? If it doesn't, will I try something new tomorrow? That's gritty. It's a real gritty thing. Wow. 
Yeah, I think responsibility doesn't mean it's all your fault. It's your responsibility is your respond and to make a different choice yeah. going forward. You, though, your point being you, that you control this. Man, it's so true. It's like really doesn't even matter whose fault it was. The fact of the matter is you've got to choose a different path. You've got to respond differently than you have in the past. Hey, guys, if you need to hire, you need Indeed. You know, in all of my businesses, and I've been blessed to have several of them, I've used Indeed now for a number of years. And the main reason I do it is, I, if you're like me, I don't want to waste a bunch of time interviewing people that aren't qualified for the positions that I have. It's one of the hardest jobs in the world, right? Or they are qualified, but they're not interested in making in the move at the given time. And so with Indeed, you have a thing called Instant Match, where they match you with quality candidates within 24 hours, and you're in front of people that want the job, that are qualified for it, and that you probably want to hire. I wouldn't go anywhere else. They've delivered great candidates to multiple businesses that I have right now. So here's what's great. Listeners and viewers of my show, you get a $75 sponsored job credit right now to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash MyLet. Just go to Indeed.com slash MyLet, which is M-Y-L-E-T-T right now, and you can support our show by saying you heard about Indeed here. That would be great, by the way. Indeed.com slash MyLet. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire. You need Indeed. Hey, guys, I want to talk to you about Shopify. You know, when I started the show, the furthest thing from my mind was doing online business, and now I can't imagine my life without it. So I love Shopify because they're a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. So whether you're in the startup phase where you're just launching your online store or you're at that really big business where you're like, hey, we just hit a million bucks in order stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. They've helped me through every single stage. I wouldn't even know what to do without them. So whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered big time. They help turn browsers into buyers. They convert their checkouts 36% better than all the leading competitors. And I've used them for everything I do online. So every single thing you see that I market online, Shopify is somehow involved. I wouldn't even know what to do without them. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash mylet, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash mylet now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash mylet. So I'm going to go back to this dilated, contracted thing. So I'm like, what is that all about? Because I... I'm really big believer that, you know, you know, my work has a lot to do with the state that you find yourself in, that if you can change your state, you can change the results, right? It's a lot of the work that I talk about. And, but I not really heard it. You, you say it in such a way, like I should be familiar with these two states, but I've not even heard the terminology before, right? So educate us a little bit on this idea that you've noticed this and that I think you believe you can't be in two states at once, right? I believe that anyway, that you're, you know, yeah. the state that you're in. So I teased this earlier, but I really want to get into it because I think it's so, at least it impacted me really profoundly. So talk a little bit about dilated and contracted and what you've noticed about yourself in those states. Yeah, I think if it's okay with you, I'll take you to kind of when I learned it. Um, I was 18. I was homeless. I wouldn't have sex with a boss. He wouldn't give me my paycheck and I couldn't pay my rent. Started living in my car. My car got stolen. I ended up homeless. I was having panic attacks. I was agoraphobic, which is a fear of leaving your home, which when you don't have a home is very exasperated. <laughs> and I was shoplifting a lot. Uh, I was in a dressing room. I was trying to steal this dress. I was shoving it down my pants and I saw my reflection in the mirror. And remember this little thing? I moved out at 15 saying, I don't want to be a statistic. Here I was three short years later, and it doesn't get to be more of a statistic. I was a homeless kid shoplifting, and the image in the mirror was undeniable. It, like, it hit me like a ton of bricks, like, holy smokes, I didn't do it. It did not succeed. I have failed. I'd remembered this quote that happiness doesn't depend on who you are or what you have. It depends on what you think. It might have been a stoic, like a Seneca quote or something. Yeah. So, all right, maybe I could change my life one thought at a time left the dressing room, did steal the dress, mind you, mm. but was like, maybe I can figure out how to change my life one thought at a time. I didn't know the word disassociative, but I was so disassociative that I couldn't witness my thoughts in real time. I had a real problem. My whole life plan was to change my life one thought at a time, and I couldn't tell what I was thinking in real time. Big stumbling block. So I thought I'll reverse engineer your hands are the servants of your thought. 
maybe if I can watch what my hands are doing, it'll tell me what I'm thinking. So I'm going to write down everything I do for two weeks. That was my next life plan. Again, pretty ridiculous. For two weeks, all I do is write down every single thing my hands do. I opened the car door, whatever. I wouldn't shake someone's hand. I washed my hands. 802 washed hands, like silly, silly stuff. At the end of two weeks, I sat down to look at like my data, trying to figure out what I was thinking. And it dawned on me, I hadn't had a panic attack in two weeks. Okay, That was so weird. It was like a really strange side effect. And it made me very curious. Why didn't I have a panic attack while I was trying to figure out what I was thinking? What I stumbled on was being present. I stumbled on mindfulness, even though that word wasn't around then. I stumbled on an exercise following my hands around forced me to be so present all day long that I couldn't worry about a future that wasn't happening yet and freak myself out into a panic attack. So that was the first thing I just kind of have to say is like a precursor is like, as I talk about dilation and contraction, it's going to take it's going to be through the lens of mindfulness. It's going to take you developing the muscle of awareness. So the next thing I needed to work on was my shoplifting. That was the number thing, number one thing that was going to land me in jail. It was going to change my life forever. Like I had to get a grip on this thing first. So I thought, well, instead of stealing, I'll write. I'll replace, I'll swap it out. I like writing. So this should be so easy. It was not easy. Mm. I hated writing when I wanted to steal. Mm. And again, why? That's so weird. If I loved writing, I'd written my whole life. Mm. Why did I hate writing then? Yeah. Okay. So I shut my eyes because I had begun to write, cultivate awareness. I shut my eyes and I thought about shoplifting. And you can watch me do it right now. I lean forward. I get excited. I can feel my eyes like pin, almost like a drug response in my body. I can feel my blood, my vascular system, my blood pressure rises. I get very excited. My mind gets very sharp. Mm. Feels pretty good. Like Mm. I get excited and it's intense. Think about writing. Shut my eyes. I think about writing. My body immediately leans back. Mm. My voice drops. Mm. I get slower, my mind softens, my whole countenance changes. That was so interesting to me. Yeah. Wow. So I wrote down relaxed and excited. And that was like my first way of trying to relate to these two physiological states. And so every time I was relaxed, I kept a journal of three things, thinking, feeling, doing. Every time I was excited, I wrote down thinking, feeling, doing. Then as I began to refine these words, I I changed it to dilated, relaxed, open, dilated, Uh, contracted, excited, anxious, uh, worried. It has quite a few states. So I had these two lists under dilated thinking I had, I'll figure it out. I'll learn. Feeling, I had um, feelings of generosity, feelings of gratitude, feelings of being honored, feelings of connection. Under actions, I had being in nature, rest, uh, being around safe people, physical activity. On my contracted list, I had thoughts like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'll never know what I'm doing. I'm ugly. I'm worthless. Under actions, I had isolating, not sleeping, not exercising, not going out. Uh, Under feelings, I had unworthiness, uh, envy, all kinds of things. So now what I basically had was a map to these two states of being. Yeah. Now I know that that's actually maps to my parasympathetic and my sympathetic nervous system. And my triggers that get me in and out of these two states. And when it dawned on me one day that you can't be in two states at once, your body, you pick one. It's physiological, it's neurological. And also it doesn't matter 
if it's a thought that triggers your contracted state or if it's a feeling or if it's an action, it doesn't matter. It starts a cascade and it's neurochemical and you get this intense response in your body. Same with the other, it's neurochemical. Your blood pressure you know, comes down, your vascular system dilates, et cetera. So the first time I got this to work for me in a, in a really profound way was when I felt a panic attack coming on, which again, took a lot of like six months of practice to notice the predis like the the signs prior yep. to a panic attack. Yep. I noticed it early enough that I could intervene. I looked at my list on my dilated. I saw that one of the emotions that worked for me was gratitude. And I was able to substitute. I was able to force myself to do something on my dilated list that elicited a physiological response in my body that caused me not to have a panic attack. And that was exciting because I really knew I was onto something that was going to change my life forever. You guys, this is an all-timer. Did you think you're going to hear someone's nominated for a bunch of Grammys? We're going this deep on something? Like, this is an all-freaking-timer. I First off, you said how silly it was I do this. I think it's incredible that an 18-year-old young woman with really no upbringing has the vision, the intuition, to even begin to stop and study, like, her hands for two weeks. That's mind-blowing to me. I don't think that's silly or ridiculous at all. I think it's freaking incredible that somehow you had the insight to do this, right? Or later to then make a list of the two different states and the three things that go with it. I think that's mind-blowing. So would you – and you've built these two maps. A couple things to unpack there. Number one, a lot, of the, a lot of this is neurology, everybody. You're in a neurological state, and if you're aware that that's the case and you build a map to shift that state, now you can own the state that you want to be in. That's the deep work that when she's – you know, you have people, mental health advocates all the time. You got work. What work? <laughs> Is part of that deep work. Would you recommend to somebody then that perhaps they do something similar where they get fully present for a couple of weeks and take note of what causes them to enter, I'll just call an unresourceful state and a resourceful state or dilated and contracted? Should Is that a practice that you recommend to somebody? Yeah, I teach this skill to teenagers. I have a foundation. We've been doing this for 22 years. It's one of the skills I teach them. I teach it to CEOs. I teach it to housewives. Um this will benefit anybody because you are the expert on you. And this is something I really want to emphasize. You know, for me, I never had access to therapy when I was young. Yeah. And then when things went down with my mom, I had money for therapy, but I had had somebody mess with my mind. Yeah. And so I didn't want to have a therapist. It was scary to me. And so all the tools that I've developed had to work for me inside my own body. And it made me very interested in helping other people that don't have access to therapy or if they have therapy, really maximizing the results they're going to get out of it. Because, you know, if anybody's listening and you have therapy and it's not giving you the results you want, it's not the right therapist. Don't be afraid to fire your therapist. Mm -hmm. You're not broken. It's just like taking your car to a mechanic and they may not know how to work on a BMW. That's cool. You're a Toyota. No problem. Go find a different mechanic. But these types of tools really help make you, it takes advantage of the fact that you are the you expert. And if you're willing to observe yourself and you're willing to study yourself, you're going to have the key to your parasympathetic nervous system and your sympathetic nervous system. You're going to know the triggers that get you more than anyone else. Now, where the, again, the rubber meets the road is once you know, like a thought that used to unend me was, I don't know what I'm doing. I didn't know what I was doing. It was true. <laughs> right. But if I focused on it, yes. it would just send me into a tailspin. Mm -hmm. So once I knew that about myself, could I abstain? Could I abstain from that thought? Well, you don't live in a vacuum, right? You have to replace it. I don't like affirmative thinking. It just never worked for me because it felt like lying. Same here. You know, so an affirmative thought. So if I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing and I know that's my negative thought, my affirmative thought might be, I know what I'm doing. I tried it. I yeah. looked in the mirror. I looked myself full in the eyes. I said, I know what I'm doing. And my body went, you're lying. That's right. Your neurology because completely Because my physiological state, that's right. That's right. it didn't change. Exactly. exactly. Yes. So it was baloney. Correct. So I had to find what I call an antidote thought. I had to find the medicine. What was the medicine that would get me into a dilated state? That took some experimenting. The sentence I ended up finding that worked was I won't quit till I learn. 
to this day, it makes me tear up. Mm -hmm. It is so true about me. Mm -hmm. So then it came down to practice. When I started working myself up, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. Building the awareness to say, I notice I'm doing it. I'm not going to consume that. I'm going to consume this. I won't stop till I learn. And literally, it's sometimes just clinging to saying the sentence over and over so that your body can relax mm. um, or choose anything else on your dilated list. It could be a thought, a feeling, or an action. Get your body into in a different state. Now you're not going to have a knee-jerk response, right? A, a, a neurological knee-jerk response that is your nurture. You're going to be able to have a thoughtful formed response that's in alignment with your nature. That's pretty cool. Okay. That's a, that's a, that's an Instagram clip right there, which you just said, cause that's so good. That's rewind the last five minutes. I want to unpack a couple things there because our work overlaps so much, but I just want to validate, by the way, some of you may be listening to going, look, I don't have all this trauma. You know, why is this, how's this relate to me? The pattern and the tools that Jewel just presented just there, right there could be the trigger for you to become in a very resourceful, successful peak state as opposed to an unresourceful, lazy, unproductive state. It may not be sad or happy or anxiety or fear versus power. It may be just success. The athletes use these states to perform. Music artists do it to walk on stage. So a couple of things just to unpack there. Number one, you aren't your thoughts. When you become an observer of your thoughts, oftentimes just the awareness of a thought helps it lose a lot of its power over you. Just that alone. Just having an awareness. She used both of those terms, just an awareness. And then what, you don't have to believe everything you think. And so she said something profound there. I do that too. I ask myself two things. One, is this thought true? Number one, that eliminates half of them. But in your case, you said it actually is true. I didn't know what I needed to know. And then two, I ask myself, does this thought serve me? Does this thought serve me? And if it doesn't serve me, it's putting me in an unresourceful state. For me, this is just my pattern. And we're a little bit different on this. Everything for me sort of starts with my body. I've got to move my body differently. My body overrides my thinking. In my case, most of the time, I'm a physical person. And for me, if I can move my body, move my body differently, I have typically shifted my state. But I love what you said. I'll often go, because it's creeping up on me. You know, you know when you started the pattern of it. And I'll just go, oh, I'm doing it again, aren't I? Here I go. Here I go. And then I start doing something called thought stacking, where I'll just repeat a thought over and over and over and make it bigger and bigger and bigger to where it eats me up. So just the awareness over it helps me. So, hey, guys, you know, when I love technology and a great idea revolutionizes an old industry. And by the way, if there's an industry that needs a revolution, I think you'd agree with me. It's the healthcare industry. It's not easy to find good doctors. And by the way, good doctors that are in your area that also take your insurance. And that's why I love ZocDoc. They are revolutionizing the healthcare industry and the way you get access to doctors. ZocDoc, by the way, is Z-O-C-D-O-C. Here's who they are. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Tons of different reviews on the doctors and they're local to you. You can find out if they take your insurance. I just did it for a tear I had in my shoulder. One day later, I'm in the doctor's office getting some help, getting an order for an MRI. So go to ZocDoc.com slash MyLet and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash MyLet. ZocDoc.com slash MyLet. If you've been listening or watching the show for a long time, you know what a big believer in NetSuite I am. I've been talking about them now for years. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors, which is why I've been using them now for five years myself. Over 37,000 other companies have as well. They've made the moves. Do the math. Now you'll see profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mylet, netsuite.com slash mylet, M-Y-L-E-T-T. NetSuite.com slash MyLet. What I want to do everyone right now, I want to step back just for a second because I want to give you a tool for some of you where it is 
a little bit dramatic for you, especially through the holidays. And so it's the not alone challenge that you have. Is that correct that there's been like 1.8 billion eyeballs on this challenge that you created? Is that accurate? And then please tell everybody what this resource is because I you you aren't alone if you're in a really dark space right now or it's the holidays. All times of year this affects people. But I think probably more this time of year than any time of year, people feel more and more alone. So I want to give you the floor on that. What a huge impact you've made with this. And if we didn't have this shared on the podcast, we we're missing a few extra million people who would hear about it. So tell us about that real quick. We'll step out of the tools and give them a resource here. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, last year was our first year doing it. Um, I have a youth foundation. It's called Inspiring Children. We help kids with suicidal ideation, anxiety disorders, self-harming. Uh, the kids run the foundation because nothing builds confidence like learning you're capable. And so the kids came up with this idea for the social media challenge. The kids run it. Last year, they got 1.6 billion eyeballs on it. Um, I obviously help and pitch in and try and recruit anybody that I can. So we're doing it this time for the second year. The idea is it's a social media challenge, hashtag not alone challenge. People do videos talking about why mental health matters. People donate heroic auction items. People can go on there and bid on them. Or there's, you know, really simple stuff that isn't expensive, like a hoodie t-shirt or a, you know, a wristband. Mm -hmm. um, all the money goes toward mental health foundations, making sure that we're putting tools into the hands of people that need them. There's lists of resources that are free. Um, and usually specific too to just different backgrounds because people just need different resources depending on what they're going through, and that's at notalonechallenge.org. Oh, good. What's uh, what's inner world? What is that? Inner world is uh, so you know as I mentioned, I didn't have access to therapy when I was fifteen. Yep. It really bothers me that misery is an equal opportunist. You know, it doesn't care. If you're a successful entrepreneur making millions, it doesn't care if I'm a homeless kid. Misery is an equal opportunist. It's not real picky. It'll it'll yes, it'll so true. it'll thrive in any system of dysfunction. Now, if you want to learn not to be miserable, if you believe you can learn and do better, that takes an education. Education costs money, right? Therapy in its highest form should be re-educating us about how to emotionally relate to the world. It should be giving us practicable tools. So it really bothered me that now happiness was an elite proposition. If you had money to afford it, yeah. what about kids like me that moved out of 15 yep. that didn't have money to afford it? Or what if I'm not getting the results in therapy that I want? How can I figure out how to create scalable, consistent tools? Again, at scale. Because when I did the numbers, currently we're 500,000 therapists short in America. Yeah. And we think that if everybody were to seek help that wanted it, we'd be 5 million therapists short. That's a bottleneck I don't know how to solve. It's not my area of expertise to solve it. What I got really excited about was how can I alleviate that bottleneck in a non-traditional and very disruptive way mm -hmm. uh, while making sure that we're delivering results. That's what Inner World is. It's a virtual reality mental health intervention platform has two phases. One is social. So it's a safe, curated uh, social environment, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, where there's a trained guide live seven days a week, 24 hours a day. The other side is education taught in groups of 30. So let's say your cat dies at 3 a.m. You can come into inner world. There's a trained guide in a social environment and you say, my cat died. I'm freaking out. That was my best friend. It was my only connection to the world. The guide might say, have you ever seen the grief cycle? That's a documented DBT. Many psychologists use this grief cycle. You can see this grief cycle now in VR. You can see where you're at on it and go, okay, there's a beginning, a middle and an end. This is where I'm at. The guide might say, tomorrow we have a class just on grief at one o'clock. Would you like to attend? And so the next day you can log on, you'll be anonymous virtually in a group of 30 people with a trained guide where you'll be taught a DBT or CBT skill. These skills have been studied for 20 and 30 years. They're known to work. They're used by psychologists and therapists. We just take them out of a psychological one-on-one -on -one setting and we teach them in group settings. And then we track outcomes. So we are a clinical research platform 
we were able to just publish two papers showing we're as effective as traditional therapy, and we're just getting started. Congratulations. I, I love when I meet somebody whose life's preparation and, and they're meeting their purpose simultaneously. I just feel like when I'm talking to you, that I'm meeting somebody who's doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing at this time in their life. And they're so good. It's what I'm built for. You are built it is. for it. It's, it. I'm built to do it and it does feel good. <laughs> you know, I have this saying, it's not mine, but that we're most qualified in life to help the person or people that we used to be. And I think it's the universe's, in my case, God's great gift to us. The trauma or tribulations in our life are preparing us to help somebody who's just like us. And I, when I'm listening to you, I'm thinking there are just millions of people that are like you and like me that have and lots harmed their worthiness or their ability to feel great about themselves. And if you're going through something like that right now, just know that as you learn and you grow on the other side of that, you're going to be immensely qualified to help people that are going through their version of it. And that there's a purpose to your pain. There is, there's a purpose to your pain. I want to ask you about. Something. Yeah. I always tell people like healing is hard. It's such hard work. Yeah. But being dysfunctional is exhausting. Gosh, that's so, so and there's <laughs> so no true. light at the end of that tunnel. Like yes. I know what my dysfunctionality is going to lead to. Yeah. But if I heal, there's actually a new option available to me. So at least the hard work is worth the effort. At oh least it gosh. might lead to a different outcome. That's so good. You ought to get something for your pain. You ought to get something for it. That's so good. Yeah. One of the things that fascinated me about you before I knew any of this version of you, right? But I remember when I was, we were both younger, you and I, I'm older than you, but not by a lot. And I was watching you become successful and become well-known. And your gift to me was so profound. Like there are, say this, but there's a lot of people now that try to sound like Jewel. But when Jewel <laughs> came out, there was nobody that sounded like Jewel. It was the first time I had ever heard somebody with that sound, that cadence, that resonance. When you heard Jewel sing, you knew instantly, you know instantly when it's Jewel. And I remember watching you thinking, this is going to be the most famous singer in the world. And at some point, this is a really hard question, a lot of achievers on my show, and I'm evaluating this for me at my age too. There's like these ladders we climb in life, right? The ladder. And when you're really down low on the ladder like you and I were, the, the next rung is worth it in almost every way. But there becomes a point, nobody talks about this. There becomes a point where you have to evaluate what the cost is for the next rung. What are the external, extemporaneous costs that come with climbing the next rung? That makes sense, right? And no one talks about this, but at some point, you have to evaluate what, what you're giving up to climb the success ladder in other areas of your life. It's just true. And in our culture, you're supposed to just keep climbing. And if you listen to a podcast like mine, entrepreneurship, self-help, personal development, you just flip and keep climbing. You just keep doing it. And at some point, there's a trade-off for that climb. And I remember watching this young woman, and I remember literally thinking this about you because we're about the same age thinking, she's like consciously chosen that not all of this climb is worth it. She could have probably climbed higher in notoriety, climbed higher in more Grammys, made 23 more albums, toured all the time. So at some point you made a choice, it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, that although you wanted this career, that there were other things you wanted more than awards, downloads, and albums sold that appeared to be more important to you and that you couldn't have you know, all of that at one time. Is that true? And, uh, and if it is true, did you consciously choose that? And what advice would you give to somebody who's like, man, I keep climbing the next rung, but I feel exactly like I did three rungs supposedly lower. I don't believe in this lower or higher, but you know what I mean when I say that. What would you say to that? I'm really curious about you on that. I've actually never had anybody ask me, uh, but I have been very intentional about it. And I actually really appreciate the question because it's what I have spent the most uh if I have any genius, I've spent whatever that is on this. And it wasn't my career. Um, that thing I wrote in my book of like, I want to be a happy whole human, not a human full of holes. Number two was to be a musician. That meant, what does a happy whole human mean? I was trying to think in terms of a, a whole ecosystem 
I'm a whole ecosystem. I'm not one thing. If I was to draw myself, maybe it'd look like a tree. I have to have, if I have one limb, it's going to uproot me and I'm going to fall over. I'll be lopsided. So for me to have happiness, I think it was a side effect of harmony, of multiple things thriving. So go back to that tree analogy. I need many branches and I need many roots to be successful. And that success wasn't my career. Um, I remember writing, how did I say it? If I get to my deathbed and the best art I created was music, I'll have been an asshole. I wanted my life to be my best work of art. And that oh meant God. I had to direct my creativity and my intelligence and my heart toward trying to live artfully in multiple areas that I had to learn how to identify as mattering. And my career mattered. I'm very ambitious. You know, I'm, I'm ambitious and I'm capable and I want to know what I'm capable of. And I had a point to prove and I was the dark horse and all of that. And I, I enjoyed it all and really did, but not at any cost. Um, because of that hierarchical thing of, I want to be a happy whole human. And I saw so many celebrities that were very, very miserable. Yep. They were drug addicts. Yep. So many celebrities, we have a very high death rate, very high addiction rate. And then as I looked in the CEO world, a lot of unhappiness. So a lot of high achievers that are wildly unhappy. Well, that's not good. We don't get to call that success. And actually, even where I see culture, if I can zoom out another level, we're the most technologically advanced we've ever been in our species, and we're killing ourselves at an unprecedented rate. We're missing something. This can't be called success. And so if I'm thinking of my life as an ecosystem, what do I want to grow? I needed my humanity to grow, right? I needed my emotional capacity to grow. I needed to heal. Uh, I wanted to have relationships, Touring nonstop around the world does not lend itself to relationships at all. <laughs> and so I had to create strategies and that means you pay prices. And I think that's the thing people don't talk about. We like to think we don't pay prices of having it all. We do. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the height of my fame, I was so famous that I had to have 24 hour bodyguards. Mm -hmm. My life was being threatened every day. I had stalkers. I couldn't grocery shop. I hated it, hated the level of fame I got. And I had to give myself permission to say, I don't like it. How will this work for me? I had to be less famous for me to be able to handle my own life. And that meant I had to pay a price. And what was interesting is in the public eye, it was looked at as so shameful yeah. to not sell out the big venue the next year. I mean, ridicule. I had to live through so much public humiliation and people saying I was washed up and didn't have it. And only you know in your own heart that it was an act of power. I was making my life work for me. I owed myself my life working for me. I did not owe all these other people another sellout stadium so that my life could work for them, so that it could have the optics of working. The optics of it working while you're miserable isn't working. It doesn't count, right? So for me, it was constantly having to give myself a lot of permission. And it took so much courage to constantly say, the whole world thinks I'm a sellout because I'm going to make a pop album. But I know I'm a sellout if I don't do it. So what am I going to do? Am I going to do what they say is selling out? Or am I going to do what I know is authentic? I'm going to choose me and you're going to have to pay a price, right? I paid a price. I did a pop album called 0304. Oh my God. You would have thought I murdered a human. It was hysterical. <laughs> Nobody wanted a nineties credible singer songwriter to make a pop album. Nobody had ever done it. It wasn't done. I mean, I got called into one of the most powerful music executives offices and he was told nobody wants this generation's Joni Mitchell to wear a miniskirt. You knock it the F off. Whoa. I didn't even know this man, but that's the kind of heat that I was taking. Mm -hmm. 
But I knew if I didn't follow my heart and do the music I wanted, that was a sellout. But I was the only one that knew it at the time. And so for me, it's constantly saying uh, at 40, got a divorce, became a single mom, didn't want to just tour as my sole source of income, had to come up with a whole new career plan. You have to reinvent yourself over and over so that I can meet the needs of that limb I want to grow. And I wanted to be a mom. I know I'd never forgive myself on my deathbed. I call it my deathbed decisions. Yeah. Laying on my deathbed, if I looked back and I had let my son down, I can't even talk about it. It hurts my body so bad. I could see it on your face If right I didn't now. sell three more million albums, yeah. I don't care. Yeah. yeah. Not on my deathbed. Yeah. I don't care. So knowing I'm 40 years old, I want to do right by my son. That means you have to get very strategic, just like growing a business. You have to make a plan. What does being successful look like? And then how can I set up success for that? One was learning how to make money in other ways so that I could be available and present as a mom. One was learning to heal from different types of trauma so that I could show up and be present as a mom. Now I paid a price. I didn't make an album for seven years. You don't go back to the same level you were at. That's right. You don't. Yep. You pay a price. Yep. And that's the thing that you know, like it's, um, you know that going in and you're willing to pay that price. It was my honor to pay that price. Mm -hmm. And I can't sell out the size venues I was prior to that. And when I read articles of like, oh, whatever, whatever might be shaming about that, I have to laugh because I was, that was my price. It was my honor to pay that price. I know what I bought with it. I'm a good mom and I wasn't taught to parent. I'm a good mom. I can look myself in the mirror and say that. That's everything to me. That's what I paid with that price. So I think like if we can be very strategic and just as strategic as you are about building businesses and you would never start a company without capital, resources, time, and talent. Same thing if you want to grow a limb on your life. How are you going to make it succeed? I can't say I'm going to go be a great mom while I'm also trying to go still be the most famous person in the world. It doesn't work like that. I'm sitting here so grateful for this conversation. One, it's the best time of my life to have this conversation with you. But at the same time, I just... I. Sometimes I'm doing the show and I'm like, okay, we're changing lives right now. And there's so much of what you just said that I just want to acknowledge. And I'm going to ask you one more question. I got to tell you something like this idea that you don't re-audit your life from time to time and say, is this still my current dream? Is this still my current dream? And then negotiating the price is okay. It's okay to say that, that it, you know, this is going to cost me something and it's worth it to me. But you have to be honest with yourself about what it's going to cost you. And it's okay to say at some point, I just think a lot of people think, I think our culture now is like, just climb your career and then get around everything else, especially in the industry that I'm in. It's like, just keep climbing. You'll get around to your friendships. You'll get around to your spirituality. You'll get around to your family. You'll get around to your emotions. You'll get around to that, except you don't because you have this fear and I have it. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to lose momentum. I'm going to lose momentum yeah. if I don't keep speaking, if I don't keep touring speaking, if I don't keep building companies, if I don't keep doing my show, if I don't do my TV show, if I don't do this, I'm going to lose momentum. And what you're saying is, yeah, you will. And that's okay as long as you know that's the price if the other things are more important to you. So it's important to audit. Is my dream still my dream? What is important to me now? And by the way, everybody, please don't think you're just going to get around to it because what Jules said here, she and I both know, People that have produced tons of external fame, influence, and wealth, I'm just telling you, never got around to the other stuff. And the vast majority of them that her and I know don't have bliss, don't have internal peace. That's not a criticism of them. Bless their heart. They just went for the stuff of life. They went for the stuff. They went for the awards. They went for the money. And that's okay if that is your priority. And they thought it would work. You know, by the way, nobody does that because they think it'll make them miserable. They do it because they think it'll make them happy. That's right. And nothing's worse than achieving this level and going, oh, my God, I'm not happy. I must be doing it wrong. I better do it harder. And they double down and they do it harder and they become more successful. And then they go, oh, my God, I'm still not happy. I must be doing it wrong. I better do it harder. 
And then, you know, look, a lot of our ego gets tied up into it, our self-worth, you know, a lot of our performative behavior is really just a compensation because we feel unworthy and unlovable. And if we stop performing for worth, and if we stop performing for love, who the hell are we? Those are very, very scary things to face. Oh my goodness. You're and re you're reading the my mind. fun thing that I want to drive home, the momentum I lost in my music career, I gained in a whole new I invented a job for myself. I became an entrepreneur in a in a space that didn't really even exist. You do pay prices, but there's unexpected dividends. If you invest in the stock market of your humanity, of what you know in your heart is right, it pays dividends. It's like God's way, the universe's way. It's magic. It pays dividends in magic. And I've never seen it fail. Like, when I wouldn't have sex with the boss and I ended up homeless, right? I paid a short-term price. It sucked. A, a big price. That was a bad price to pay. But I invested in my humanity. I ended up getting discovered at the end of that year. That's just magic compounding math. That's that's compounding magic. I don't know what you call it. But I've never not invested in my humanity and not had it pay off in dividends that were exciting and unexpected. That's kind of more fun and more dangerous then climbing the ladder where, you know, the results are leading to yielding happiness quotas, you know, how much more. And that's another thing about happiness is I call it blowing by happiness. Very few of us examine what actually makes us happy. It's usually really simple. It's connections. It's connections to your family and your loved ones. It's usually something simple like fishing or <laughs> these things that we go by because we think we need so much more extraordinary wealth and it ends up making us less happy. So you really do have to do this different type of math. Oh, my God. And I want to spend a whole other hour talking with you about like getting to know yourself. If you'll have me back, I really want to like delve into that because it's a it's a really important area of when we become perfectionists, when we become addicted to being performative yep. and how do you get off the cycle when all of society has patted you on the head and rewarded you for being performative, but it's not from a deep sense of worth. How do you get off that train is a very tricky thing psychologically. Well, you're, you're reading my mind a couple things. One, I want to have you back on open invite and I, not that many people we have come on twice. I would have you on next week. I want to have you back. I will take a breather and I want to have that other conversation. And by the way, it may not be just society patting you on the head for being performative. It may be your parents. It may be your family. Yeah. And a lot of us conflate love with significance, love with recognition, because the only time we felt any love as children is when we did something significant. We brought home a report. When we performed a for song, it. Yep. We had a home run, and we get that. So I would love to have you back on. Is yeah, and I'd love to weave that back into, if you'll help me remember, and let's do this next week so it'd be fun. Okay. But performative perfectionist behavior and how that relates to the dilated and contracted states, because they really link into one another of helping somebody get off that train. Yeah. Yeah. We're doing this again. We'll get our schedules together and we're going to do it again. I have to tell you all something. It's one of the more profound conversations I've had on the show. And I opened up sort of telling you that when I started to dive into Jules' work, I sort of knew that was going to be the case. But we even go deeper than than even I hoped. I want to ask you one last question, just because if I don't, my audience will be straight away with me because you than this. And so it doesn't need to be a long answer because we're both, you know, I know you're pressed on time, but I am going to have you back. But what would you just say in general to somebody who says, you know, all the things you guys talked about today are helpful to me, but I don't feel worth it. For whatever reason, I'm at a point in my life where I don't feel worthy of this happiness that I don't deserve it. Cause I believe that's the number one barometer in our life is to be consistent with our identity. And I think that that is the epidemic we're living in. I think it contributes to the mental health crisis. I think it contributes to the, even the physical crisis, the physical illnesses that we have, the inflammation in our body, the, the, the high suicidal ideation rates, all, a lot of this is connected to people. Just, they don't feel worthy of it. And so I know it's a long answer. We could do a whole podcast on it. But if I had to ask your brilliant brain there with all of your experience, someone just said, I just don't feel worthy. You would say begin here or here's a tip. Here's a key. Here's a thought. What would that be? I guess I would say, are you willing to invest 
and getting to know your worth. You only think you're not worthy because you don't know yourself. If you could see yourself, you'd think you were worthy. We, it wasn't reflected to most of us, right? My childhood did not reflect my worth to me. My takeaway from my childhood was I must be worthless if my own parents are neglecting me. That's just the natural takeaway. You have to be, that has to be your takeaway as a child. Mm. And if you don't ever re-examine that, then we lose out. And so are you willing to fall in love with yourself? Mm. You know, if I'm going to date, I have to put time in. I have to put money in, right? I'm going to expect to go on dates. I'm going to expect to spend some money on the dates. I'm going to expect to spend some time going on these dates so that I can learn to fall in love with this person. Why don't we do that with ourselves? So I guess the only thing I'd ask is, are you willing to invest in a relationship with yourself? You don't fall in love overnight. You fall in love with yourself over time. And your ability to love yourself has been obscured from yourself your whole life. But it doesn't mean it has to be. It just means you didn't take the time, weren't taught how to take the time, haven't made it a priority a combination of all of those. And would you like to start? This is so good. Is it inner dot world? Is that right? It's inner dot world. Yeah. You guys, I would go check out inner dot world. That's a really good place to begin. And I think just follow Jules work. I'd go to Instagram, social media and start following her and, um, and stay tuned because she's coming back on. We're going to have another one of these. I think we should be doing this regularly, like once or twice a year, just have you on and we'll just chop it up, see where you're at then. And, compare notes on our growth. I, would... I like it. I enjoy it a lot. Really did. I really enjoyed it today. Everybody, I ask just one favor of you. We're the fastest growing show on planet Earth because you share it when it impacts you. And I have a feeling this one's reverberating around the planet right now. So I just ask you to share this beautiful conversation the two of us had today. And Can I uh... ask you a favor, Ed? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> While I'm here? Yes. I don't, I'm just moved to do this. I'm actually going to ask your audience for a favor. Let's do it. I have been working on a book for a three year on concepts like what we've talked about today. Okay. I'm having the hardest time getting it simple enough. And I'm very curious what people really feel like would help them. Okay. Uh, because over too much of my life, I've gathered so much information that I'm not actually sure what's the most useful. So I love being asked questions because uh, it just, corners me into being able to have something really specific to say. So A, what's been really impactful? Um, and should that go in a book? Uh, and then just be any questions. And then I'll figure out Ed, how I can get together on that material with you. And then maybe we'll do another show around it. I love it. Okay, guys, do that. Reply in the comments here, social media. You can DM each one of us those comments and those thoughts as well. And um, I'm so grateful for today. Like I'm blown away. I'm so glad we did this. I'd like to do it in person. We'll do one more through Zoom like we're doing now, but I'd love to do one of these in person when I'm back out in LA. We'll do that together. If you can get out there, I'd love that. Or I'll, I'll come to Utah. We'll figure it out. Sounds good. All right, you guys. God bless you, everybody. Share the episode. Take care. This is the Ed Milet Show.